still in the great escape. This is going to be our 61st message in the book of Exodus. Last week in our message, the workmen of God, we were introduced to Bezalel and a group of craftsmen that God would task with creating his holy tabernacle on earth, right? And looking at God's calling on them, we saw a parallel to us as believers, right? As he calls us to accomplish his will on earth through our lives, modeling him to the world around us, right? This morning, we come to the close of God's instructions to Moses, The Lord moves on to another very important detail in regards to these very specific requirements, right? Now that Moses knows the the how and the who that will take place, that will do the work of God and fulfill his plans, the Lord will make sure that Moses is aware of a very important point, right? He wants to make sure that the Israelites reverence his instructions to the letter and they work according to them in our message titled today, Honoring the Words of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us, Lord Jesus, to hear from you. And I, Lord, you know I've prayed throughout this week. Uh, it'd be an unusual day preaching, uh, Lord, to, to just two people, God. But I do praise you for that opportunity, God, to pray, to preach to the world uh, on the Internet. And, God, I do pray, Father, that you will bless and guide the message, Lord. I've asked you to speak to me, and I believe that you have. And, Lord, I now pray that you help me to get out of the way, that you would speak through me as a vessel for your use. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. To give us a little bit of a catch-up as we're working our way through, I always want to give you a little bit of review. So last week, the Lord introduced us to those very specific craftsmen, right? They were given the responsibility to create the tabernacle, and everything was associated with it. These men were selected by God and called by name to do exactly what God had gifted them to do. We saw that their gifts and their talents were bestowed to them by God by way of the Spirit of God. And what we saw for ourselves as Christians is, guess what? God also calls us to his service, right? Not only does he call us, but like these craftsmen, he will enable us and help us to accomplish or give us the abilities and talents to accomplish what it is that he's called us to do, right? And it's this amazing truth that helps some of us maybe have a little more confidence because maybe we don't have a lot of talents. Maybe we don't have a lot of skills. But there's a reassurance here in the fact that God says, look, if he's going to do something amazing through your life, it's not because you're amazing. It's because he's amazing and the great work that is done is through his power working through us, right? We don't have to have necessarily talents or gifts. What we need to have is a willingness to be faithful and to accomplish what God would have done, not what we would have done. Because all of God's, if you had all of the God-given talent in the world, it would accomplish nothing if it's not used for God's purposes. As we meet, after meeting these craftsmen, um, we see what God's entrusted them to do. The Lord now gives us and includes a very specific detail. As we pick up in verse 31, or chapter 31, verses 12 through 18, let's listen to God's closing instructions for Moses, and they also include a dire warning. Okay, Exodus 31, verses 12 through 18. Exodus 31, 12 says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And let's not lose sight of how amazing this phrase is. Look what it says. The Lord spake unto Moses, right? Remember, this is God, the God of the universe. This is the creator. This is almighty God. This is the holy father. This is God speaking to Moses. Listen to this in Exodus 33, 11, in the first part of the verse, it says, and the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend, as he speaketh unto his friend. 
And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. So we see Moses' interaction with God is like a friend. They spoke with trust, with comfort, with love, as friends, right? But this, this was not always the case <laughs> with, with Moses and God and the way they interacted. Prior to their very first conversation, we'll see in Exodus chapter number 3, Moses is being prepared. He's working in the wilderness for 40 years, learning how to become a shepherd, working for his father-in-law, Jethro. Little does he realize that in that training, he's also being trained for a future where he is going to shepherd sheep, the Israelites, through 40 years of wilderness. But look at how Moses reacted the very first time that he and God had an interaction, Exodus 3, 6. Moreover, he said, this is God, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now it says in the upper verse, it says that he saw, they talked face to face as friends. Here he will not even look at him. Moses was scared to death, man. He felt completely inadequate. And we'll see later on that he's going to try to talk his way out of being the one that God will choose to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. In Exodus 4.10, Exodus 4, listen to what he says. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. He says, hey, look, God, <laughs> I'm not your man. I'm not the guy. I don't have the talents. I don't have the abilities. I'm not gifted to do this thing, right? And what we find here is the fact that God, it's so important that it's not the messenger that's relevant. It's not the messenger that matters. It is the message that is the key. Exodus 4, verses 11 and 12, listen to God's response. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go. And I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. He says, look, I'll be with you. I'll teach you. Do you remember last week we talked about the fact that as God called these men, these, these workers, that he had already equipped them to accomplish things? We talked about as, as Jesus re reinforced or talked to the, to the disciples before they were to be taken captive. He said, look, but when you go before the magistrates and before principalities, I will give you what to say through the Spirit, right? God will prepare them. And see, what we have to understand is he is the important variable in the, in the equation. God is the important variable. It's not us. We're not relevant, but what is important is God. Thankfully, God has always used damaged messengers, right? He's done great things through people that had great failures in spite of themselves. All God needs is someone willing to be used and willing to speak his truth. Because you see, it's not the one speaking, but it's the truth that speaks to the heart of man. In John 10, verses 13 through 14, it says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, right? Without a preacher. A preacher is someone who's willing to share the word of God. They're willing. That's not just somebody who stands behind a pulpit. It's any one of us as we share the truth of God's word. We share the gospel, the good news. How will they hear unless somebody preach? In verse number 17 in Romans 10, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? They will have faith based upon hearing the word of God. The power is in the word, not the preacher, We've got to be careful 
that we are conscious of that fact as we share truth. God can do the impossible through someone who is just simply willing to be used, right? And that being said, we need to be mindful, right? Always remember, if we are that one that God is using to speak, right? That it's the message that matters and not the messenger. Let's not get filled with ourselves and think we're something special. If God does something great, he's done it, not us. Moses eventually submitted to being used by God, right? And their relationship with it develops over time. And we find that Moses, man, the more he learns to trust God, the more God will use him and develop him. Moses went from being fearful and trying to find a way to escape, right, to actually communing with God as a friend, right? And as we come to an end of the Lord's instructions here in Exodus 31, I think it's important to remember, right, how these instructions began. Here we're at the end, but let's jump back as a reminder of how this all started. In Exodus 24, verses 12 through 18, it says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. Just going back into that verse 24, 12, look at that first where it says, And the Lord said, Come up to me into the mount and be there. That's one of the most beautiful parts, beautiful scriptures in the entire Bible. Look at what God of the universe is saying to this man. I want you to be there. Be there. God wants to commune with us. That's the whole point of this tabernacle. That's the whole point of what God's trying to direct him. And all the instructions that God's giving is pointing to that, that God wants to be with his people. And what's also awesome about this, in fact, he says, these commandments which I have written that thou may teach us them. He says, look, you don't have to know what to teach. I will teach you. I will give you what to say. Verse 13, and Moses rose up and his minister Joshua went up unto the mount of Gad, of God. And he said unto the elders, tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain to the eyes of the children of Israel. As they looked, they saw this amazing scene. And Moses went up into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mountain, and Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. So in all this, as this has taken place, right, and this is, now we see what God's going to tell him here at the end of that 40 days. Here are God's instructions in verse number 13, Exodus chapter 31, 13. He says, speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, verily, my Sabbaths ye shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you, Right? God's giving them this reminder to the Israelites. He's saying, look, to this Jewish people, he's saying, look, the Sabbath is to be kept. It's to be reverenced, right? If they, right, they must always, they cannot disregard the Sabbath, right? And the reason why he's telling this is because understand, he's just given them some very exclusive work to be done. They're going to think, man, what this is the work that we're doing. This is the work of God that we're going to be doing. We're building things that God's exactly directed us to do. And what could happen is they could think because these are the things of God, we can work seven days a week. Let's just get this done. He's going, ah, ah, ah. Remember, even though this work is entrusted to you by me, you are to keep the Sabbath. There is no exception with the Sabbath. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that, sh that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So if the children of Israel were to disregard the Lord's instructions, 
they would be individually accountable to God with their lives. Working on the Sabbath was a death sentence. We see an example of that in Numbers 15, verses 32 through 36. There's a man that's gathering sticks, and he's out there working during the day and on the Sabbath. And guess what? People catch him, and they bring him back to Moses. And guess what? He is stoned for breaking the law. There is to be no exception when it comes to the Sabbath. Remember that the Sabbath is to be holy under the Israelites, right? And when they break it, notice the fact that he uses the word up here, defile, right? It says everyone in verse 14, everyone that defileth it shall be surely put to death. So we see that word defile. Defile means to profane, right? That's the root word of profanity or curse, right? Standing in direct opposition to God. So when they worked on that Sunday or they worked on that Sabbath, they were in fact literally defiling God. They were standing in opposition to him. And in our day and age, right now, guess what? Those same kinds of people, they're in the world, right? They rebelliously stand against God. And every believer, guess what? At one point in time, that was us. We were in that exact same group. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5 says this. And you hath he quickened, talking about believers. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, right? You were worldly. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He says, you used to be the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past and the lusts of our flesh. Conversation, it's not just our words, it's our actions, it's our life, it's our lifestyle. So he says here, among also, among whom also we all had our conversations. Notice he says all in times past and lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So look, that is who we are by nature. We are children of wrath. We are those ones that stand in opposition to God. But here's the good news, verse four. But God, amen, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. He loves us in spite of who we are, in spite of our rebellion. God loves us. Verse five, even when we were dead in sins, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He says, by grace ye are saved. Grace, grace, grace is offering love to someone who does not deserve it, and that is humanity. We don't deserve God's grace, but he offers it to us. It's this, the grace of God that has always been extended to mankind throughout time to redeem him. Now, in the Old Testament, right, it was faith accompanied with works, their own works. As the Israelites would endeavor to keep the law, right, they made sacrifices. They tried to maintain the law. This is what would save them or sanctify them to God. Because, you see, there was no sacrifice yet. The, the, the sacrifice of the Lord was not to come. Everything you see in the law and the covenants, it's all pointing to the Savior. But guess what? It's not been fulfilled yet. But when we get to the New Testament, guess what? That same grace is extended to mankind. Only this time, it's accompanied with his perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And when you and I, by faith, trust in his works on the cross, not our own, we're saved. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7 says this, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Notice this. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, unlike the Old Testament saints, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing 
of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, look at that, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, man, the children of God through the sacrifice of our Savior. As church age saints, we are saved by grace through faith and not according to our works, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Notice that first part, by grace and faith and not of yourselves, meaning it's not the person that you are, right? It is the gift of God, not of works. It says clearly, not of works. You're not gonna earn your way to heaven. It's not based upon your works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Our works are not something that we do to gain our salvation, but a natural result of our salvation. By our works, people will know that we are Christians because the fact is God has done a work in me and it's him that shines. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. It's his light that shines. It's his love that shines. It's his truth that will make a difference in the world. Then the Lord gives Moses a reminder of exactly what the Sabbath is. Look at this in verse number 15. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh, in the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. As we'll see in verse 17, the Sabbath is actually picturing God's creation, right? That creation story that spans six days and then culminates into that seventh day of rest, right? That seventh day was to be set apart. It was to be sanctified from all the other days. Those six days, those six days of work would have been focused upon things like farming, production, trade, right? And we could say these six days were, they were dedicated to the world when they were. And by stopping all of this worldly effort on the Sabbath, the people would actually be afforded the opportunity to work on their relationships, right? Between them and, and their family and their neighbors and, 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 and their friends. But most importantly, God himself. They focused upon what was important and they developed their spiritual growth. The Sabbath was to be a day of restoration and rest, right? Listen to our Lord's appeal to a multitude of Jews as he offers them rest, right? He's there before these Jews and he's offering them rest through deliverance, through him, a deliverance from the law. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For you see, as a born-again Christian, our rest is not in the Sabbath, but in the Savior, right? We aren't bound to the Israelite covenant of the Sabbath, right? And let me give you some additional proof of that, right? Now, there was a time frame in the first century where there were these Jewish zealots that were going out. These men, they were called, they called them Judaizers. And Judaizers, what they would do is they were going out and they were trying to teach people that were born-again Jews, they were trying to tell them, look, you need to still keep the covenants of the Old Testament, they were teaching a false gospel. Believing Jews, they should say, hey, you know what? These covenants, you're to keep them. Abraham's covenant of circumcision, the feast days, the Sabbath. They're saying, you're, as a Jew or as a Christian, you're supposed to still continue to do those things. And here's what Paul says in response, right? Now, these same men are mentioned, and this same concept is mentioned in Galatians 2, Galatians 6, Philippians 3, 
and in Acts 15. But we're going to look in Colossians chapter number 2, verses 8 through 23. This is Paul's response to these Judaizers as they're teaching this false gospel. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. He says, Look, don't follow the rules of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Look, don't get caught up in this false gospel. Remember whose you are. Verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Talking of Jesus, as Jesus is God in human form. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Your salvation is in Christ and nothing else. He is the ultimate. Verse 11, in whom also ye are circumcised, and the circumcision made without hands. Notice that. This is a spiritual circumcision, not a physical circumcision. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we're no longer added to God's family by way of a physical act through this work here, but actually through a spiritual one, trusting in Christ. Verse number 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Through our faith in the work of our Savior, we are born again. Verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. You see the word quicken, that means brought to life, having forgiven you all trespasses. In our flesh, we had no hope, but because of God's grace and love, oh, look at this. He's not only forgave us, but he gave us this righteousness of God through his perfect blood. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He said, look, the law, which stood against us, we could never meet the aspects of what the law asked us. But what happens, bottom line, he says, the law is now given to us. It reveals our need, of, it reveals our sin, and it shows us our need of a Savior. Verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus stood defiantly against the religious leadership of his day and overcame them and their power on the cross. And what's so awesome, and what they saw, see, as a victory as they crucified Jesus <laughs> was in fact their greatest failure, right? For you see, the requirement for sin has always been blood. That's always been the requirement. But through his sacrificial death on the, death on the cross, the power of this world would be defeated through his death, burial, and resurrection. Little did they know that they were fulfilling God's plan to save the world. Verse number 16 says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of, any, of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. These were the covenants that God made with the Jews, but these believers were no longer Jews. Now they were Christians. Verse 17 which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The law was pointing to Christ the entire time. Then verse number 18, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. What these men are promoting is of their own creation. It is not of God. Verse 19, and not holding the head, this is not holding God, from which all the body abide joints and, and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. What these men are teaching is not grounded in God and does nothing to edify or build the body of Christ. Verse 20, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, are the, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances, right? 
If this is who, what you did before salvation, before you received Christ, why in the world would you continue to do these things now that God has come, now that the fulfillment has, been, has arrived? Look at 21. He gets specific. He says, touch not, taste not, handle not, rules, rules, rules. He says, look, works, 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 right? Verse 22, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Why would you follow the rules of men when, guess what? You are now called, you are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Doing these things might appear godly, right? It says, it's this show of wisdom. It looks like you're godly. It looks like you're religious. But guess what? They are the works of men, not the works of God. And for those of you guys that may have been, maybe you were raised, raised in a religious background, and maybe when you were in the midst of it, you recognized the fact that what you experienced was not of God. Maybe you sat there and you, you sat through, through ceremonies and you looked at the intricacies of all this religious service and it felt hollow to you. And there's a reason why it felt hollow. Probably because it was hollow religious ceremonies. There are so many folks that are raised in that mindset. I personally was raised, I was not raised with God. I didn't know the Lord until I was 34 years old. It was the first time I heard the gospel. But you know what? Up to that point, after getting saved, I, I used to be like, you know, man, I really missed out because I wasn't raised in a religious home. But the more I find out about the religions of the world, the apostate religions, those of men, the rules of men, and the more I learn about who God really is, the more thankful I am that I missed it, man. Because you know what? There are so many people that are not in church today because of a religion that they were raised in or they were taught. Rules, regulations, ceremonies, and they were used the Bible as a basis, but they made men's rules, and they had no, the problem was, there was no Jesus in the place. When it comes down to it, in Revelations 3.20, the Bible, God says, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord's reaching out because he's speaking to the Laodicean church age. That's us. And he's saying, look, you know what? I'm not even in your church you're having worship, but I'm not there. You're celebrating God, but, you're, but I, you know what? I'm not even in the presence because guess what? We're filled with our flesh. We're filled with fulfilling ourselves. And it's a sad thing. There's a lot of people that are religious out there, but this is not about religion. That's what I need you to understand. It's not until people get a chance to really see who God is that the Lord can then change their lives. And we all need to be changed. We come out of this world with its lies, its cruelty, and its destruction. But you see, that's not what God intended for us. That's not what God's plan was for humanity. Look at this in 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7. This then is the message which we heard of him, talking about Jesus, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. That means these things of the world, this cruelty, the lies, the destruction, the sin, the lust, those things, they're not of God. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness... We lie and do not the truth. But verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Man, we walk as children of God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. <laughs> we are set free from this world. We're born into this garbage. We're, we live in this garbage. Many of us deal with the sin. We deal with the scars of the life that we lived, trusting in this world. But God can set us free. He created us for a beautiful love relationship with him. For you see, as believers, it's not about the rules. It's not about the religion. It's about that relationship with God that's real. 
And let me just compel you or, or just, just challenge you. If you have a relationship of religion, <laughs> disregard it and look beyond it. Try to find who Christ really is because when you really meet him, he will change your life. And that religion will no longer be what you thought it was because you see God in the midst of it. God can do even in the midst of religious activity, God can reveal himself as truth if you know him. And I've challenged you to know him. The covenant we see here is for the Jews. This one that we see here written the Sabbath is written for the Jews and it's for the Jews alone. In verse number 16, it says this in Exodus 31. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. Notice again, wherefore, the children of Israel. This is for the Jews. This is a perpetual covenant between them. As Christians, we meet on Sunday in celebration of the day our Savior rose from the grave in victory over death, hell, and the grave, right? It's not about fulfilling a covenant, but to celebrate our Savior. Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, remember how the Lord taught Moses. He talked to him about when he was going to build the tabernacle. He talked to him about following the pattern or what he had been shown in the mountains. In Exodus 26, 30, he says this, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. He's saying, look, follow the pattern. With a tabernacle as a picture of heaven. He's saying, follow the same pattern that I've shown you. I also see that very clearly. If you, We don't have time to it today, but you'll, Hebrews 8, verses 2 through 5, you see that same explanation. So when it comes to the Sabbath, guess what? The Lord, again, gives an example for the Israelites to follow. Creation, right? We've discussed in the past, ultimately, that this creation is actually pointing to, the creation story is actually pointing to the second coming of Christ. It's talking about the 6,000 years of humanity and that 7,000th year of rest, that day of rest. That is God pointing to the millennial reign of Christ. God is a God of order, and guess what? He uses examples when it comes to his teaching. And what's so awesome, this is why he designed the Old Testament and the New Testament to work together the way that they do. If you hear somebody tells you the Old Old Testament's not important, they are absolutely clueless, clueless biblically, because the the Old Testament is key to understanding the New Testament. The Old Testament is the picture book, the picture book that explains the New Testament concepts. If there's a concept you see in Scripture in the New Testament, you will always find a picture of it showing us an example in the Old Testament. And speaking of the word of God, check this out. Verse number 18, and we're almost done. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communion with him, upon Mount Sinai, the two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Here we have handwritten first edition copies of the word of God. How amazing is this? Remember what God told Moses back on day one of the 40 days, back then in Exodus 24, 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses, way back in the beginning, when he first went up on the mountain, and he came, I says, come up, to, uh, come up to me on the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou may teach us them. Can I just tell you this? Always, God always, always, always keeps his word. And I don't mean the fact that God always does what he says he's going to do, which he does. But guess what he also does? He says he will keep his word. He will preserve his word. In fact, he will preserve his very words, the very words of God. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7 says this, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation. And the last words say, for 
ever, right? Now, that's a, a whole sermon on itself, and we'll get to that in the future about the preservation of God's word. But God wrote the law, if you notice this, with his finger, right? That's picturing to us the fact that his preserved word would also be written by him. The Lord may have, been used, may have used human hands to pen the Bible, but they were divinely directed by him. 2 Peter 1, verse 21 says this, For the prophecy came not in old, not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration, right? Given by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Ultimately, Moses is being tasked with exactly the same thing that you and I are tasked with, exactly the same thing. God's given his word with the expectation that it will be reverenced, that it will be followed without question. He says, you are to keep my word. That's why understanding humanity, guess what he's done? He's woven warnings throughout the scripture, always detailing the consequences of disobedience. But when it comes down to it, it's all about, it's all about choices. It's all about choices. Choices for the Israelites and choices for us. We get to decide, will we spend our lives reverencing human wisdom, trusting in our own knowledge, in the wisdom of the world, as we said before, we've all suffered through the wisdom of this world. We've followed our own conscience. We've followed our emotions. We've made decisions. A lot of us live with a lot of regret from stupid things that we've done in this life because we followed what the world said was smart. But let me tell you, James 3.15 says this, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. We have fallen into those sensual and devilish thoughts. We've fallen prey to those things, and we live with the scars because of those things. So, do we want to continue honoring the wisdom of this world with its destructive and painful results? All the things that they bring to our life? Or is it time we start looking to true wisdom, wisdom from above, and begin experiencing the peace and the love and the incredible joy that it will manifest as we choose to live our lives Abiding by and listening to and honoring the words of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. And I do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we've had to, to meet over your word. Thank you for the wisdom, God, that's in the scriptures. It is so incredibly deep. And uh, Lord, I do thank you so much for the way that you've shown us some incredible truths, Lord, that is so important that we honor you. And honor your words, God. You have a purpose and a plan for our lives. But when we follow the wisdom of this world, it will take us so far off track. If we follow our emotions and we put them behind the wheel of the car of our life, they will inevitably drive us into the ditch. But God, if we will put you behind the wheel and we will walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, God, we can go great distances for the cause of Christ. And we can shine a light into the darkness even now, while people are frightened of this virus, God, we can shine a light into the lives of those that are in need. And I would ask you, God, to use us as Christians, Lord, that we not be bound by the wisdom of the world, that we not fall prey to fear, that we not live a life, God, that reflects the light of this light of this world, or the darkness of this world, but in reality reflects the light of Christ. Help us to be a place of hope, not only in the name of our church, but, Lord, our lives, as we interact with our neighbors as we come across people online. However we interact, God, help us, Lord, to point people to the truth of your word. 
Because if we will just learn how to honor the words of God and live a life that does just that, God, you can do great and mighty things through even the most broken vessel, through even the most uh, failed individual. Because it's not about the messenger. It's the power of the message. God, you are that message. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord God, for using us. Thank you for today. And I'd ask God that you'll guide us now as we go forward. Use our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. And as we have our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, uh, if you're here today, you're online and you say, you know what, I don't have a relationship with God. There are a lot of people out there that have a religious experience. You know about God. You may believe in God and that's wonderful. But let me warn you that the devil also believes in God. He believes in him wholeheartedly. He's met him. The Bible says that the, the demons tremble in the presence of God. They don't doubt his existence. So believing in God is good, but that's not all it takes. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the price for the sins of the world. And it comes down to this. We've got to be willing to accept that truth for ourselves. Understanding the fact that, you know what? The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have the same issue. The same thing separating us from God is the sins of our life. No one escapes that, that penalty. We all face it because we all have it. But the good news is that God loved us. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He's reaching out to the world, not one individual, not pre-chosen folks, to the whole world, offering his love. And all it takes is us willing to receive it, because the gift of God. The Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift. If I offer you a gift... You've got to be willing to receive it in order for it to become yours. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he offers the gift of salvation to every single solitary person on this planet. All it takes is a willingness to accept it. The gift is offered. The price has been paid. It comes down to us individually. Are we going to let our pride rule our lives? The Bible says that pride, lead, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride will take us straight to hell. But the good news is a humble heart can come to God and say, you know what, I know I'm the problem. I've made mistakes, and Lord, I know that I'm accountable for them. And there's a penalty for my sin. But the good news is, because God loves us, he paid that penalty in our stead. And right now, I'm beckoning to you, and I'm begging you to make a choice to receive that gift. He loves you right where you are. He loves you in your brokenness. He loves you in your failure. And he wants to restore you and use your life for his glory. It's why you're here. If you've wondered why you exist, it's not to be happy. It's not to, to live a life that's fulfilling. It's to be holy. And the byproduct of holiness is incredible happiness and joy. It can change the world. With our heads bowed, I'm going to ask you right now, if you bow your head, and you say, you know what? I know that I do not have a relationship with God. I know. I may believe in it, but I've never received Christ as my Savior. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right where you are and trust Him as your Savior. Right this very moment, the, the, the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart. He's beckoning you. He's begging you to come to him. He's ready to save you right now. The only thing stopping it is you. You've got to be willing to receive it. So if you bow your head and close your eyes, and if today you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. I'm going to lead you in prayer, but it will not be the words of the prayer that will save you. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is the heart that God's listening to. And if you with your heart want to receive Christ, and you pray this prayer with me, in your heart and mind, and you mean it, God will save you right where you are. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, remember, he's listening to your heart. It's not the words that will do anything for you. You can pray in your mind. You can pray out loud right where you are. 
I'm going to lead you in prayer now if you want to receive Christ. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Repeat after me, I didn't say that. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am sorry for my sins. You died on the cross and paid the price that I cannot pay. Lord, I'm asking you right now by faith to come into my heart. Lord, to forgive me of my sins. God, to to pay the price, Lord, that I desperately need you to pay for me. I receive you as my Savior. I'm asking you to save my soul, to come into my heart, and give me a home in heaven. Lord, I love you. Thank you so much for loving me. I will see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.